0: Welcome to the American Valor Podcast. The Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation is the unique intersection of Major League Baseball and the United States Navy and Marine Corps, representing the 37 Baseball Hall of Famers who served in World War II led by Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller. My name is Nathaniel Cameron. My name is Tyler Buckholtz, and my name is Colin Kirk. We represent the Bob Feller
1: Active Valor Award Foundation. On the American Valor podcast, we search for people who display American Valor. These individuals represent our four pillars of citizenship, service to one's country, sacrifice to one's goals, and legacy to future generations. We'll find their stories and bring them to you, stories you want to hear. Today, we have the pleasure to be joined by National Baseball Hall of Famer, Mr. Johnny Bench, the 1970 and 1972 Most Valuable Player and two-time World Series Champion, including the 1976 World Series Most Valuable Player. Mr. Bench was a 14-time All-Star and a 10-time Gold Glover in his 17-year career with the Cincinnati Reds. A core member of the Big Red Machine and the greatest catcher to ever live, Johnny was named the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation in 2018. Welcome to the American Valor Podcast, Mr. Bench. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
2: Well, I mean, uh, I grew up as a boy in in Oklahoma. Uh, Worked in the fields, pulled cotton, combined peanuts. Uh, My whole desire in life and my dream was to be a Major League Baseball player and catcher. And my dad had served in the war uh, during World War II. He never got the chance to fulfill his dream of being a Major League catcher. And he told me, told the boys, my two older brothers and myself, that you know, catching was the quickest way to the major leagues and what the major leagues needed. Uh, my other two brothers, they were good athletes, but they never had a desire or a dream of playing in the major leagues. But I did. And we, we started the league program in, in the hometown of Binger, Oklahoma, and my dream never wavered. And my dad supported me, like my brothers let me play and compete against them. So I was always competing against older kids. And it brought my level up. And then in 1965, when I uh, graduated, I was drafted by the Reds and went to the Carolina, Fort, well, Florida State League. Then I went to the Carolina League, International League, and at 19, I I was up in the Major League. So it was quite a, a whirlwind. And of course, for 17 years, I played uh, for the Cincinnati Reds and we won two World Series. And I was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame as as you know, in 1989,
1: we mentioned a lot of your baseball accomplishments, but what some fans might not know is that you actually served in the military, uh, while you were playing, um, you were in the army reserves. How did those two, uh, coexist during your career?
2: Well, I, I, I did basic training. I was in Fort Knox. I did combat support training in Fort Dix. I did my summer camps, uh, in AP Hill Lawton up, went out to Fort Sill and Lawton, Oklahoma, then up to, to, uh, Watertown. And, uh, you know, so I did my, my summer camps and, uh, on the weekends that uh, we had our, uh, meetings and I, I did attend, but they made me an assistant cook. And so I actually went to the, uh, armory at six, at four thirty in the morning. And, uh, served as the cook uh, assistant cook until the guys were fed. And it was right around 12 o'clock that I was released for my uh, duty from my duty. And I would go to the ballpark and uh, actually play the game on Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon, as it turned out. So I fulfilled my duty for six years.
0: What did you learn in your time in the army and what did you carry with you uh, into your career and and into this day?
2: Well, you know, basic training was, uh, you know, nice six weeks of, of real hard work. And, and needless to say, I didn't have to get in shape for spring training. They had me in great shape. And uh, I, I got to the rank of B4. I thought I should have been at least a general by the time I, I got out. But I, I didn't get promoted as fast as I thought I would. And uh, I uh, my, in, in the combat support training, I was a field wireman. And so I learned how to, to hook up switchboards climb telephone poles, I guess just everything that was normal within the, uh, uh, realm of what being prepared in case I was called to serve in active duty that I would have been ready.
0: You flew around the world on uh, USO tours with Bob Hope. What was that experience like? And what did you learn from Mr. Hope?
2: Well, Mr. Hope was amazing. My, uh, oldest son, the name is Bob, Bobby. I named him after Bob Hope and Bobby Knight. And, uh, We went from uh, Burbank, California, and we went to around the world in 12 days, and we went to West Point. We went to England. We went to Germany. We went to Egypt. I mean, to uh, uh, yeah, we went to Greece, I'm sorry, and then we went into Vietnam, flew in and out of uh, Vietnam, and then went to Korea, Alaska, and then back down in 12 days, and that was back in 1970, and then in 90. Ninety-one, I went with uh, I went with Bob again, in ninety, I guess it was. We went to uh, Desert Storm with he and uh, Aaron Tippin and the Pointer Sisters and Donnie and Marie Osmond, and got to meet a lot of our soldiers. Climbed up on the half tracks. Uh, Bob and Dolores were just truly amazing people, and Bob's uh, seemed like his he all he wanted to do was make everybody feel good and to look good. And to uh, and entertain the our troops, and nobody could do it better, and nobody ever really did it better.
1: Speaking of entertainment, while you were playing, you put on quite a show. Uh, consistently slugging home runs. Uh, ESPN once called you the greatest catcher of all time. What are your thoughts um, about the catcher position back when you were playing um, versus how it it's played now?
2: Well, I don't know that it's ever played any different. I, I, I know we changed the the way catchers did use. You know, catcher's gloves. Now every catcher uses a hinge glove. Um, they learned to be a one-handed catcher, and uh, and I and I implemented the helmet into uh, to my career in 1966. The using the helmet underneath the mask, and uh, it is still a staple today. Uh, but you know, the whole idea is to you know you try to get the best out of your pitcher every day. I always thought that a pitcher or a catcher had four ways of having a good day, his number one priority was to call a good game and try to get a win for that pitcher and the team. He could throw out runners, he could block home plate, and of course then he could hit. So it was it was fun for me because I had, you know, it was only fun if we won. Uh, there was a lot of ways to have a good day, but it was only really counted if we, if, we, if the team won that, that day.
1: Do you think that mindset on winning is what made the Big Red Machine so successful?
2: Well, the mindset's great. You got to have a lot of talent to do it. And that's what we had. You know, you can, you can go down our team and, and most people, you know, of my era and, you know, at 50 years of age, it seems like because we played in the seventies, you almost had to be uh, 50 to appreciate and understand most players, most people today can still name the starting eight. And, you know, when you, you mentioned Pete and Joe and Tony and, then you go with Foster and Griffey and Geronimo and Concepcion to go along with Perez, Morgan, Rose and myself. You know, it was an amazing, talented team. We all got along together. We could have had big egos. Nobody did. And uh, our success was uh, gave us recognition as one of the greatest teams in the history.
1: Do you think that putting those egos aside had a lot to do with your manager, Sparky Anderson, and his leadership?
2: Well, of course, I, you know, it's an upbringing thing too. You know, you got to give a lot of credit to your mom and dad, you know, you learn how to, as a, I think even, you know, being in in the army reserve and going to basic training and to do, do all the things I had to do, you know, you had to have discipline, you have to have it. And that's what it took every day as a player as well. So the combination of all of that, the respect we had for Sparky, Sparky was just an unbelievable manager and, uh, a person as well. But the quality of the players that we had and and they went to great great steps to make sure that we had good people. And we were actually asked at times if we, we thought some player that they were contemplating for trading for would have fit into our team. And we actually had a say, yes or no. And a lot of times it went that way that they they trusted us.
0: What leadership traits did you learn from Sparky?
2: Well, I think, I think I had all of that. I think the whole the idea was to give respect to the game. But, you know, a leader is a person who's on time, does his job, doesn't ask anything special. He doesn't need special treatment. And Sparky was the kind of guy that would, you know, pull your reins in if, you, if something was in. Hey, don't do that. You know, that's not who you are, and that's we got to respect the, the other game. And because we had such great respect for Sparky, it's like respecting your father and mother. Is it wasn't hard to understand that that you had to be there, and then Sparky just continued on with the folks, uh, with the type of leadership and the type of respect that uh, that he deserved, but baseball itself deserved, and uh, because of that, people looked up to us as to being, you know, uh, exceptional for what we could what we could achieve.
1: You mentioned your parents and your upbringing. Going back to the beginning in your childhood, how did working on a farm and coming from a small town affect you going forward into your professional career?
2: Well, it gave me structure. It also was a, my way of making money. I mean, I two cents a pound pulling cotton and then combining peanuts. And, you know, it was just a, a matter of fact thing. Your dad worked hard. Your mom was a great mother that, you know, she was the one that had all your uniforms ready. She was the one that had the meals ready. But you know, dad set the tone as far as him, him driving a propane truck. In fact, I drove the truck and delivered propane to, to the farms and to the uh, uh, residents around Binger and Caddo County. And uh, my responsibility was to deliver the gas. And my responsibility was to pull cotton. And, you know, that was just a way of life. And what we did in order to make money, if we wanted to buy our baseball glove, it, where it's my money, and went to, but most of the time, or to buy a new pair of Levi's. So this is just the way it is, and nobody even thought any se- any second things about it.
1: Going back to your childhood and then being inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, you've written about sharing that moment with your father. Can you tell us about that weekend for you?
2: Well, I, I, well obviously, it's the greatest, you know, for any baseball player to even that you don't even think about going in the Hall of Fame. So to actually. Uh, be inducted and to have my my father here. Uh, I I I always said I didn't go in. He did because it was his greatest day of his life. Uh, he was up here with guys that he respected. I mean, he introduced himself to everybody uh, in in the hotel. Every Hall of Famer, you know, they would come up to me and said, "Hey, I just met your dad." Hey, I just met your dad. Hey, I just met your dad. <laughs> hey, I, met your dad. I didn't. I didn't have to go anywhere that my dad didn't. So when I actually and uh, was uh, for my speech, I actually was talking about uh, uh, my family and introducing them. And I waited till the last, and I said, "I and I'd introduce my dad, but I'm sure most of you have met him already." <laughs> it was, uh, you know, he was dream. He served two hitches. He gave up his opportunity that he had. He thought to play professional baseball, and he 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 never, you know. Did he read it? No, he walked out of high school when he was in his ha- halfway through his senior year, and went back later on and got his degree. But uh, no, he, uh, he was in North Africa and he was in Italy. He was in the uh, field artillery, and uh, and he would never talked about it. But uh, he respected all of our servicemen, and uh, but his love of the game never never wavered. And he moved to Cincinnati and. He loved my career. He loved baseball. And so for me to be inducted, he was uh, he was sitting on top of the world.
1: And he served in World War Two. So did you ever have any uh, personal memories with Bob Feller um, or the, the 37 Hall of Famers who served during World War Two?
2: Well, you know, as, as you know, a lot of them don't talk about it. And and some of them, well, you know, I mean, they take it as a matter of fact thing that with that. That was their responsibility that was what they were supposed to do and you know jerry coleman was uh you know very close friend of mine and and, uh served as a colonel and you know as you said there's 37 different players and what a lot of people don't don't know is that uh willie mays you know um you know he gave up his his time and for not being able to hit in 661 home runs It was hard to imagine how many more he would have hit. I mean, I think he would have probably broken Babe Ruth's record.
1: So going off of that, talking about uh, the sacrifice your dad made um, and the sacrifice that those players mean, uh, how would you define Valor?
2: Well, Valor is standing up for what you believe in uh, against any outside enemy, any outside force. Valor is serving... Uh, with great distinction. It's having uh, respect for the flag, for the uniform, for America, and being able at any time that when you face battle and you have, uh, you don't even think about it. You're willing to commit yourself and everything that you have uh, to defend uh, what our forefathers gave to us.
0: You wrote a book called Catch Every Ball. And in the book, you talk about your five vows of success, achieve, employability, inner conceit, opportunity, and use. Can you speak to what these words mean to you?
2: Well, you have to speak to what they mean to you because I ask all my, when I speak, I ask the audience to give me their A's. A is an attitude. Uh, e is an effort for excellence. I is an inspiring individuality. E is accountability. A is answers. O is opportunity. U is using people. And, and being upstanding, you know, all of these things are what people believe for themselves and they make those distinctions and choices. I had friends do it. When I'm talking, I talk about accountability. I talk about employability. Would you hire yourself? I mean, if you, if, if you had to write out a resume, would you hire yourself or, you know, and the inspiration, you know, at the end you say aspire to inspire before you expire. Uh, we just, uh, it, it's, uh, people wanted to ask me how my my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I said, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? If you're good at what you do, whether you need a plumber, whether you need an electrician, but it, or whether you had a lawyer or an insurance agent, you ask someone a question and they have the answers. They've caught that ball. They're the ones that you've thrown stuff at and they've been able to catch it and they're the ones that you trust. For a young person that's catching, nothing gets by them. They say, wow, what a great catcher he is. Well, that's why you catch everything that you have in your life. And for me to, to say, okay, what's your A? And uh, people will be amazed at what they do. What they're, I'm not amazed, I'm never amazed because that's what I want people to do is be introspective and think about their lives. And think about what they would have and what might guide them. So when you sit down today after this podcast, you give me your A. And you give me your E and and I and O and U. And it's just a great way of uh, inspiring yourself
0: to move forward. And in your book, you also say, time is priceless, but knowledge is free. Demands nothing but your curiosity. By asking questions, you not only empower yourself by getting answers, you also empower those whose expertise you're seeking. So my question for you is, what is the best piece of advice you have received? Who gave it to you? And why is it the best
2: you received? Well, my dad said catching was the quickest way to the major leagues and what the major, league, major leagues needed. See, I talk about the A as the answers. I talk to, I talk to the, my, I have young boys, 9 and 13. And even in the early stages, I would talk to their, their head of the school and say, hey, can you give my kids the answers? And they would look kind of at me and I'd say, yeah, why what else are we looking for why do we do it? Why do, why are we giving our you walk out of a class and you don't have any answers. All you've got is questions. Nothing's been given to these kids. Nothing is gained. So I need answers. So what do I do? The you I use people. I use people every day because I want this I want their knowledge. I wanna know how things operate. I, I use people because I don't know about computers. I use people because I don't know about electronics. I use them all the time and what they're what they're what their knowledge is. And when I, when I can ask someone, what do you think? Uh, And what is the answer? And they tell me, I own that. I have that the rest of my life. I own exactly what my question and the answer is this. And so why are we hiding answers? I mean, I can go to Google and Siri and they always give me the answer, but you go to a school or you go for training, and they said, well, you need to figure some things out for yourself. And I said, I have no problem with that. But at the same time, when I walk out of a class, I want to know exactly what in the heck I was supposed to learn that particular day because we, earn, we all learn at different paces. We all, you know, somebody may, somebody, a C student, somebody's an A student. C students are the ones that's running the company and running our world because somebody gave them the knowledge And they own it, and they were able to learn it sometimes the hard way. But, you know, we all have intelligence. You know, I think I'm as smart as the next guy in a lot of cases, except I'm not. I don't have the answers to everything. And so I have friends that do, and those are the people that I rely on.
1: And going through your time in the MLB, did you keep that uh, same philosophy of trying to learn from other players and throughout your career?
2: Oh, you always watch players. You always watch what they do. And how they do it for me, I can, nobody could catch for me. So I had to learn to do it myself. I'd learned to catch every ball that was thrown to me. And that's why I had such great success, but you watch hitters and you watch what the good hitters do and you watch their techniques and you try to say, okay, he's moving his hands. Basically training, hitting is basic. Everything is kind of basic. You learn to do stuff, but you have to do it on your own, but you have to learn your mechanics and what starts a good swing. What creates things that you really need to be successful
1: do you think that in uh, modern baseball now people kind of strayed away from looking at you know drifting hands that you said or mechanics and focus on sabermetrics maybe too much as in we see the the shifts being employed today a lot more frequently than they were obviously when you were playing
2: well anytime you're shifting and somebody doesn't go the other way then you know that's just beyond me why that happens i mean yeah I think there's a lot of good on both sides. I think I think there's great things to learn. I think players, you know, they think, oh, they hit more home runs. Well, they're bigger, they're stronger, and they're great athletes. I mean, they're supposed to improve. You know, we, we watch the golfers now, and they hit at 340 yards because they've learned that with the training and the equipment and everything else to be better, and it's all worked on, on completely for them. And so, uh, you know, all of this is – we always supposed to be improving and that's what say or analytics and all the stuff. I don't even know what they all stand for, but um, I think these are the things that continue to improve. And that's why we continue every day that we must improve.
1: What was your Which memory did you enjoy most?
2: Well, I, I caught Jim Maloney's no hitter, but the greatest thing I ever did was uh, when we won the world series against the Red Sox and all the individual awards were great. But when I get in that locker room and all of our players were world championship, it meant everything.
1: And how, how did that feel catching that last out in your first World Series?
2: Oh, there was no feeling like it. And there, until I got in the clubhouse and all the guys, every player was a world champion. The coaches were world champions. The, the manager, the equipment men, everybody was a world champion. So it was just the greatest time for, for everybody. And it, we were all equal. Not not a I was a better player. This guy was not as good. This guy. We were just we were great because we were able to win this World Series and we were able all to be world champions. So gentlemen, I've really enjoyed it. I've got to run.
1: Mr. Bench, it has been an honor. Thank you very much for your support of the foundation and willingness to share your time with us today on the American Valor Podcast.
2: Thank you, you guys are great.
1: To our listeners, thank you for listening. Please subscribe, leave a review and share. Tune in next time as we talk to the 70th Secretary of the Navy, the Honorable John H. Dalton.